Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom is built for your psychology and your biology, meeting you where you are. Noom Weight uses psychology. That's why they say losing weight starts with your brain. But it also takes into account your unique biological factors, which also affect weight loss success. The program helps you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have cravings. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Plus, check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available for pre-order wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast, number 173. I'm recording this on Sunday. L.A. is a traffic snarl because of the Oscars. It's bad anyway. And then when they start shutting down streets that are main arteries to get to places, people just lose their fucking minds. Award shows and rain. Those are the two things people cannot deal with in Los Angeles just in terms of traffic. Like, if it, were, if it weren't a Sunday, people would be calling in sick for work. That it literally happens. I gotta, I'm going to call an award show for work today. Um, that absolutely would, ha- would happen today. But that's all right. I've made it to Nerd Melt. I just got back from uh, Image Expo in Oakland, which was super, super, super fun. Um, I, got to, I met a lot of cool people at the Walking Dead panel and... Uh, and it, it, you know, I'll talk about this in the hostful this week, but I just want to talk about what a great what a great time Image Expo was. But for now, let's focus on uh, let's focus on the nerdist business at hand. Uh, we are running with lightsabers in hand, screaming at San Diego Comic Con this year for the four days leading up to Comic Con, July seventh through July eleventh. Uh, we are going to do Course of the Force, which is a partnership with Machinima and Lucasfilm, and it's basically a lightsaber relay. We're one at a time, quarter mile segments, passing a lightsaber down the California coast. Hopefully. Uh, in costume. We're going to have uh, parties and, and music and uh, panels every night along the way and uh, all of the money from the run segments goes to the Make-A-Wish Foundation. So uh, if you want to purchase that quarter mile segment, go on to courseoftheforce.com right now and grab those. Uh, it's going to be crap loads of fun. Also, uh, we have a bunch of uh, live dates coming up. Uh, Jonah and Matt and I are going to be in Boulder, Colorado, March 2nd, then Austin, Texas, March 3rd for two shows. March 23rd in Philadelphia, and I believe we're adding a second show to that. So the first show sold out, so we're adding a second show. Then we're going to be in Atlanta, March 24th, Minneapolis, March 30th. We added a second show to that, too, because the first show sold out. Then Madison, Wisconsin, Chicago, Iowa City, Royal Oak. Uh, State College, Pennsylvania, Boston, Massachusetts, May 4th. So all those uh, information for all those dates are at Nerdist.com slash calendar. Uh, I would love to thank, as our returning, our, our, our bold new sponsor, Stamps.com. Stamps.com is amazing. Uh, I've been using them for years. Super convenient. When I started all the, the Nerdist stuff uh, early on, I was using Stamps.com to, to mail stuff. Out. Even going back to when Mike Furman and I were doing Hard and Firm uh, songs, we, I was using Stamps.com to send out CDs to people because it is an amazing tool if you're a small business. You can print postage on any letter or package whenever you need it 24-7. Then the, then the postman picks it up from your house. You don't ever have to leave. It is the best. Re- if you want to run a small business nude, Stamps.com makes that possible. You also have to have something wrong in your head. But beyond that, they could make that possible. Um, so right now, there's a no-risk trial at Stamps.com. Uh, you go on, you get a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and $55 of free postage, but only if you use the promo code NERDIST. Why waste your time going to the post office, finding parking, waiting in line? Uh, most people are running small businesses out of their homes right now. You can get out of your bed, walk to your workspace, Print out whatever you need to send out, and then just slap some postage on it, and, and then you're done. Uh, that is that is the pinnacle of productivity 
without having to get in traffic today, uh, which is normally a horrible experience in Los Angeles. I assume it's not great wherever you live traffic-wise. So Stamps.com, 100%, I I recommend these guys. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and then type in Nerdist. That is Stamps.com. Enter the promo code Nerdist. Now, uh, this episode, uh, we were super blown away to get a phone call asking if we wanted Willem Dafoe on the podcast. I was like, what? This is the Nerds podcast. Are you, are you sure you got the right number? And they're like, yeah, yeah, Willem Dafoe. And we're like, the, the Willem Dafoe. And they're like, how many Willem Dafoes do you think there are? I'm like, I don't know. Do you have a phone book? There must be like eight or ten in the greater Los Angeles area. There is one Willem Dafoe, and he came on our podcast, and he was every bit as amazing as as I had hoped he would be. Uh, super cool, ha- had lots of amazing stories. Really opened up about about his his work and his career. Um, I'd also like to say that uh, John Carter, the movie that uh, that he's in that he's currently promoting, is is opening March 9th in theaters, um, which of course is is the the imagining of the uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, 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 stories. So I really uh, I really really enjoyed this episode, Matt. Had to work. Jonah was there, uh, and we just went and talked to Willem Dafoe, <laughs> and we both left. And Jonah and I were kind of speechless, like that was—he was amazing. That was Willem Dafoe. So, if you ever get a chance to have a Willem Dafoe in your life, I totally recommend it. Uh, here it is, the Nerdist Podcast episode number one seventy-three. Willem Dafoe. Now entering Nerdist.com. Good. Jonah, you sound good. Well, it's funny you say that because I was just to see what you guys were about. I was just listening to some podcasts. Oh, you were? And one of them was uh, Patrick Stewart talking oh, yes. about how he fell asleep on the set of <laughs> so Star Trek. Oh, my God. He was, you know, when I first started the podcast, it was just a bunch of friends and people that, that yeah. I knew. And then as it started to branch out, I was like, oh, no, I'm going to get Patrick. And I don't know him. And, yeah, sure and, sure. and he was. So unbelievably sweet good, and good. Uh, just a nice guy. Have you ever worked with Patrick? I haven't. I haven't. Can we? We're going to make that happen. Then. <laughs> Are you announcing now you're going to work with Patrick Stewart? Hollywood Reporter. Willem Dafoe demands to work with <laughs> Sir Patrick Stewart. Yeah, that's the way it works. Isn't it? Yeah, you just said it happens. Yeah. You can't. Is it? Is it a weird position to be in that anything you casually say, someone could take seriously, and it becomes a weird headline? Well, you know, sometimes when you do junkets and things, you feel like. Um, you know, particularly if it's an ensemble cast, they're just waiting for you to say something really stupid because that becomes the most noseworthy and newsworthy thing that uh, is going to get out there. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, sometimes you say nothing and they pump it into something really big. I've got a big beef with the internet, actually. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, in in the time I've been working in in movies and theater. Um, you know, everyone thinks it's freedom, but you know, it's the Wild West. And the truth is, it's great for there to be lots of opinions out there, but nobody fact-checks anymore. Sure. Uh, you know, the journalists are sloppy a lot of the time, really sloppy, because it's kind of like, if you don't like it, go to another site. You know, there's such fragmentation. Nobody's yeah, yeah. holding anyone to anything. And I, there are good things about it, but as far as, you know... Opinions. Opinion... Or, or something that appears to be a fact, be very suspicious always. <laughs> I mean, I'd say, everyone knows that, but you got to remind yourself over and over and over again because sometimes I'll even write, read things about my friends and I'll say, wow, <laughs> they really messed up or, or, you know, they had a weak moment or, right. or oops. And then I check in with them and they say, no, that wasn't it at all. It's totally fabricated. <laughs> so... Well, as human beings, I feel like we're just, we are sort of designed to see a thing and go, oh, that must be, that must be real. Yeah, but you know, so a lot of people, I think we're also trained to um, take our opinions from other people. Right. I think we aren't trained to be independent thinkers, believe it or not. And, uh, you know, because so much is, you know, I think people are, people like comfort and they like to feel uh, identify themselves with a group mm-hmm. so they run towards 
a certain stance, an opinion, to f- to kind of collect themselves and know who they are. Yeah. So I think it's very rare. Everything, you know, in an information age, you know, I think it's very rare. You got to really fight to know how you feel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's true. Well, I, because I, because advertising's working on you. You're bombarded like lots of information. Um, you know, it's just. Uh, Things have changed. Well, I think I, I, I keep that saying that fight for individuality is much tougher now. Well, how do you maintain that then? Is that, I mean, who says I do? <laughs> <laughs> it's something I'm interested in, you know, uh, and I think it's important, particularly if you're making things, and particularly if you're telling stories and you're representing a fresh point of view, because mm-hmm. that's the only that's one of the reasons to tell stories, not just to reconfirm what people know, but also to challenge conventional thought and mm-hmm. say, "Hey, guys." You know, I'm not telling you the way things are. I'm telling you what's really lying under the surface. Right. Yeah. And how do you keep how do you keep challenging yourself that way, or how do you how do you keep trying to find ways to surprise you know surprise well, audiences? You know, with me, I'm an actor, so it's um, I you know it's funny. I'm protected by I dedicate myself to someone else's story and part of to someone else's you know, idea or writing, and I'm a collaborator, and I usually, I'm the one that has to embody or is sent out to explore that thing, and I become the thing. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, that's how it becomes creative and personal for me. But the initial impulse comes from someplace else. So it's like you're always directed to kind of... uh, find out something that you don't own and then find a relationship to it. So you're not protecting anything because it's the it's the way there that makes your relationship to it. Okay. You understand? So is it the complete release of control within yourself or do you yeah, find that it's a hyper, like it's over? You know what? It goes back and forth. It's never one way or the Sorry. other. But the truth is if, if everything, you know, operates between two poles, I mean, for an actor, the poles are, you know totally letting go and control those other two ends and then always depending on what your job is and what the project is it's somewhere in the middle yeah do you how do you gain that awareness I mean do you actually do you sit and watch your work I don't I don't you don't no but we're getting pretty hypothetical. Let's let's talk a little bit about movies. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Well, I'm just fascinated. By I mean, I like that, and I get sucked into that because it's stuff that interests me. But yeah, I think, I think out of context, it's hard for uh, people to understand. Do you when when you work with a director, are, are you still able? Do you kind of go like, all right, I trust you if you tell me to do a thing? No, I mean, you know, you usually uh, there's usually reason they trust you trust them I mean that trust always has to be found but it's really nice when you repeat like in the case of John Carter it's it was really nice to work with Andrew Stanton before sure. like in the case of Finding Nemo even though I was doing a voice I got to get to know the guy sure. because at Pixar they work very thoroughly and uh, you know when you say oh he voiced that character and I mean, I worked on that character for a while because right. you come in over time and the the scripts change and he keeps on uh, playing with the story and plays on, around with different attitudes. He's all about lots of variations mm-hmm. and finding, uh, uh, approaching a scene from many different angles. So I thought, wow, this guy is kind of inexhaustibly, uh, you know, he, he experiments a lot. Yeah. And then when I heard he was going to do this uh, John Carter of Mars... And it was a passion project, and it was a, a big fantasy uh, sci-fi thing for Disney, an adventure film. I thought, wow, this is fantastic. I mean, this is the guy that made Wally. I mean, yeah. made this fantastic film out of a you know a story about a you know a post-apocalyptic kind of uh, <laughs> new robot. I don't, I don't even know how you pitch that. I want to do a post-apocalyptic. It's just one robot. Really? Yeah. Is there... And he's just sad. Yeah. What? And there's no talking for 45 minutes. Oh, no. That, you know, man, when it. you think about that, he did. And that takes really balls and that really, you know, takes sticking to the story and believing that out of this, you know, this very simple log line, you know, uh, which is all, you know, he starts with the salad. Uh, you know, this beautiful story is told. Well, that's what Pixar became. I mean, I, it really feels like they are able to form a relationship with the actors where 
you they really take cues from you and what you're doing to to kind of form the character as much as I just you know they they've created a little utopia there where they've really found a way to balance uh, you know rigor and play and uh, commerce and art they're really good yeah. and and um, you know I'm sure it's not perfect but uh, they really make an atmosphere where um, people can help each other mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know uh, criticize each other. Uh, it's it's a process. They understand the process of how to make things. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting is when that same thing was applied, because he had a lot of Pixar people with him on John Carter, when that's applied to a big picture, it's amazing how kind of, in the end, efficient it is mm-hmm. towards uh, making the movie. Now, don't get me wrong, this movie is a big budget movie, but when you watch it, you if you know anything about how to make movies, you see it. Yeah. It's not it's uh, it's not bloated, and that's why I always that's why I always bristle when anybody brings up the budget because it's like, shut up! Did you pay for it? <laughs> you know, watch the movie. No, watch the movie. Yeah, Did you like it? Yeah. Did you like it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you didn't, you know, pay the same amount for the ticket when you walk in. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. I like some like some like blue collar guy. Like, yeah, why'd I give that movie a hundred million dollars? I should have spent that on myself, on my family. Shit. Uh, and it's funny, like for people who aren't familiar with the with the story, it is literally like one of the oldest sci-fi stories. Like it's, it's the Rice Burroughs. It's a hundred years old, and I know they tried to make the movie for years, but I feel like. Right. It's just the technology wasn't ready until... That's that's one theory. I mean, you know, and then I said that, but, then, you know, I thought, oh, they, they haven't found the technology to integrate creatures with live-action people. Well, they did, because they did some of that in Star Wars, for sure. example. Yeah. But, and in fact, uh, George Lucas in tips his hat to uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs mm-hmm. has been an important influence. Many yeah. people have. A lot of people, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I suspect you are sort of right. The time was right to um, be able to tell something on this uh, this kind of scope because the beauty is like there are creatures in it, but the creatures are kind of treated like people. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say like my character, who is a um, he's a leader of the Tharks, which is a primitive, warlike, Aboriginal, Martian, green people, mm-hmm. nine feet tall, four arms. Um, I don't know. Uh, I've lost my train of thought in, in describing what it is because it's quite a mouthful. But yeah. where were we? Well, we were just basically talking about the technology and creating this alien race. And, and oh yeah, like, yeah, I know what I know what I was saying. Um, the point uh, the point that I wanted to make was, even though they're very exotic, they're kind of integrated in in a way that you know, yes, they're fabulous, but you also identify with them. Yeah, they're almost like uh, there isn't a huge gap between the humans and the creatures. They're right. kind of operating on the same level. And maybe that comes from the fact that we, you know, uh, Andrew was very insistent about filming the best we could what we were doing mm-hmm. um, and then animating it later. So you would find the scenes first and then you would uh, do what technically is required afterwards of course sometimes it's made better there are certain things that I couldn't do that they could do in post but basically I was wearing you know stilts and this gear so we could get the right spatial relationships and so we could play the scenes do you when you when you when you're playing a character that speaks another language yeah not always but uh, <laughs> I, I, I do speak some Thark yeah exactly <laughs> uh, what do you as an actor, like, how do you approach when you kind of don't really understand the words that are coming out of but your mouth? But you do, because uh, you sit down, and at first they get a linguist to uh, uh, to make a language. They took pieces from the novel, because there are little bits, very small bits, and he, from those little pieces, imagined a language mm-hmm. and created a kind of a syntax and, you know, gave us the sentences, told us what they meant, kind of could... Uh, put certain words, you know, do a translation for us. So it's not like we were fluent in Thark, but we knew what we were sure, saying. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, it, and it's good because, you know, it's, it's like any time when you're performing, when you take something that takes away from, from you 
and you're experiencing something new, it kind of opens the door to thinking a new way. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's true when you learn anything, when you learn a new job or you learn a new language or when you meet people, when you have a shift of something that's unfamiliar. It opens the door to imagining new ways and gives you new impulses. It sure. becomes a tool. It becomes a key. So it's yeah. what seems like kind of a superficial thing is great help. Like into, we don't speak extensive Thark in this language, thanks to a convention that happens about a third of the way into the movie. <laughs> we, we start to be understood in English. But um, before that, the language was important to find the voice mm-hmm. and kind of find the, it, it helped to find the character. You've, I, I think when, when people start listing your credits, it's, they're ridiculously impressive. Um, and, and also, I was so, I thought you were amazing in uh, in Life Aquatic. Oh, as okay, well. good, good. When you so like a character like Life Aquatic, Life Aquatic, it's not the movie. Like what's the? It's not. It's not technically a comedy, but it is. It's it's entertaining. It's funny. It's humorous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you how do you approach a character like that? Do you like doing comedy as well? You know, you you get certain indications, you know, that some things are supposed to be comic and some things are supposed to be serious, but, you know, you also get surprised sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, you're not thinking comedy, comedy, comedy. You just look around you and, you you know, the world is made and you try to operate in that world and find out, you know, what the scenes are. And then once you apply yourself to the scene, stuff happens to you mm-hmm. and then it propels you to the next scene. And it... I... Maybe I'm lying to myself, but right now I can honestly say, I don't say, you know, to describe it to a friend, I might say, hey, I'm doing a comedy now, something different. Right. But I don't really think that. Right. I think, oh, what's Klaus about? You know, okay, he's going to be dressed like this, and he's going to kind of talk like this, and these are his relationships, and this would happen to him. And, you know, I think about the scenes. I think about the actions. I think, and then things occur to you. And then if they fit in that world, and if they feel right, and, you know, if people are laughing on the set, then you kind of say, hey, maybe this is comedy. But even that, you know, um, isn't what guides you. You know, it's, uh, you kind of have to figure out what you're doing, and sometimes you don't even have to give it a name. I... uh, I think the best performance sometimes comes pretty intuitively. I get, and I would imagine you'd have to be pretty, pretty flexible. Even even you go in with ideas, but once you're there, you're like, oh, I guess it's this, and that guy, that actor's going to do that, and then I got to, you know, you know, you go. I, you know, it's always nice to be a little, have a little something up your sleeve, but you should be ready to abandon it immediately. Yeah, you know, just something up your sleeve so you put in motion, so you're not waiting. So you, you know, you got to do something. To, to even if it's wrong, you know, uh, just to get it going. Yeah. And then then you start reacting to what happens, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm going to blow this a little bit, but I like our friend Barry Gifford was talking about, I think it was, you know, one of the great, you know, like Dashiell Hammett or someone like that said when he got stuck writing, he just has a man come to the door with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> and... It's totally an arbitrary thing, but it helps to push him to the next stop step. Right. And he may have to erase it. He may have to go back and change it. But sometimes you need things to just propel you forward so you aren't passively waiting there for something to happen. Yeah. you got to offer up something, and you got to fall on your face a little bit to make stuff happen. Yeah. But you're still human, and I still... And, but, and sometimes... I I always love to find out what people do. Like that's a, that was a perfect example of like, I, you know I wish I had the right thing. I'd be so embarrassed if it was like one of the other writers, you know. Uh, but anyway. But it's a it, but it's a good it's a good story though because I, I always love to know from a writing standpoint and a performer standpoint when I hit a wall sometimes I just don't know what to do and then from an acting standpoint when you hit a wall do you have to walk away or do you have tricks that you can kick your brain back into gear probably a little bit of both yeah a little bit of both or someone helps you you know yeah yeah when you uh, when you first started uh, acting I know you did uh, you know like you did some like street gang movies in the in the, in the uh-huh. early 80s uh-huh. and I'd read this thing where you said you were really worried that you were going to be typecast as a villain so what did you it, do, do you kind of plan out the kinds of roles you want to go after to define your career as opposed to just you know, taking whatever? It's a, mixed, it's a mixed thing. You know, you 
go after Rose and Rose go after you and everything is kind of conditioned by what's out there and yeah. that's just a question of how much you lay back or how much you go forward with what's available to yeah. you now at the beginning of my career so much was you know conditioned by the fact that every day I was working at the theater so movies were like the sideline believe it or not mm -hmm. but I knew what I was being offered was kind of consistently kind of bad guys which was understandable because when you're younger and if you aren't conventionally handsome or, or conventionally charming or something the strongest roles tend to be villains because they're like the young man's character roles you know okay. um, particularly like in action pictures and genre pictures so I like that but I, I didn't want it to limit how I could be seen how I see myself and I didn't want me to become a sign, become a sign that you show up and you say, oh, I know what he's good, you know. <laughs> right. It's like you're dead in the water. And you can build a career out of that. You can refine that as a thing, you know. You can build a whole persona. And some actors do beautifully like that and have a really, you know, that's, that's one way to do a career. And that's one... I, I'm not a snob about that. That's just not what I like to do. Mm -hmm. I feel a little more turned on if I can live in this delusional world where I believe I'm flexible <laughs> and I can do different things, you know? Because in the end, that's, um, you know, that's, that's, that's what exhilarates. That's what's fun to yeah. always have that shift of um, seeing with new eyes and, uh, you know, not, not, not getting stuck, you know? Yeah. Not getting stuck with a certain way of thinking, which is is you know everything conspires us to do oh it's such it's so hard not to get superstitious or not to get not to be try to be safe right and constantly try to push yourself to to scary things or to repeat you know what you see has worked in the past and right continue to work that and refine that as i say that's one thing but i don't know i, I maybe i'm not you know maybe i like a little uh stronger hit or something well like it's that. good because it, it's 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 a better long-term plan and i think once you start working in one area it's easy for your agents to book those kinds of jobs it's easy for people to hire you but then you could argue too though that with time goes on if you have a good career that way then you subtle make subtle shifts i think you'll see actors that have that in their career yeah yeah was was platoon the movie that where you kind of went oh shit uh my career is changing now you know what on, on some level, I'm always going like that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, for better and for worse. No, Platoon was important. I don't want to say... Sure, sure, sure. But but it's relative. It's, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know... Yeah, it's like uh, to live in L.A. felt like it was a yeah. big step. Uh, Streets of Fire felt like it was a big step. I you love know, Streets of Fire. They all have their reasons for being special to you. Yeah. I mean from a career standpoint you yeah. know um, but if you if you look back now and just technically speaking I think Platoon was important because it it was a it was a film that people felt dealt deeply for and it was a character that you know people really projected on and, uh, and you kind of get the benefit of the goodness of that character mm -hmm. um, and you know, when you're when you're the teller of the story, they project that someone to you. So <laughs> he was such a romantic and beautiful character that they give you some of that. Right. So um, it was special, you know, because that was a very uh, that was for some people it was a very loved character. Yeah. Uh, is it is it odd sometimes when people come and they go, oh, I loved in the movie when you were doing this and doing this and you're kind of going I didn't I wasn't really doing any of the what like people do project what they want to of see course, of course but you know that's cool yeah I mean, <laughs> you know uh, people you know uh, movies the best movies are a living thing you know and even when they're crafted and they're very specific you know the audience finishes them yeah it's really the audience that should do the final work uh, they complete them I mean in theory I like that idea anyway. Um, so, yeah, if that's what it is to them, that's what it is to them. You know, are they wrong from my point of view? I was there. Yeah, they were. <laughs> but who cares? Who, this, isn't, uh, this isn't about who's right or wrong. You know? Right. Yeah. I didn't, you grew up in Wisconsin, which I didn't know. I grew up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Appleton, Wisconsin. Appleton, Wisconsin. Yeah. Do you ever, you ever, I, I, Wisconsin is one of those places where 
it totally sneaks up on you where you never think like, oh, I would, I guess I would go to Wisconsin. And you go and you're like, it's beautiful. Yeah, you're like, no, it's no. a really lovely part of the country. You know, I, it's one thing, you know, I grew up there and I was very happy growing up there. And then to do what I had to do, I felt like, whether it's true or not, I felt like, you know, Mecca was New York. Because mm-hmm. actors, being an actor was being in the theater to me at that point. And the theater was in New York. So that's where I ran. So, and I didn't go back for a long time, probably because all my family um, left. They went all over in the States. But I went back not long ago, and it, I, it was really nice. And uh, it's really changed as well. Because one of the things that I found, you know, in, when I was away from there for a long time, I just remembered it as being a very white place that, you know, it was a... a I remember it as a, like a paper mill town where I grew up, a paper mill town where the people that owned the factories had names, you know, German and English last mm-hmm. names. Yeah. And the people that worked in the factories had Italian and Polish last names. <laughs> and, and that was it, you yeah. know? And I just felt like, I don't think it was true in retrospect, but I felt like there was a narrowness there. And sure. then when I went back, I felt like it's really... Um, you know, it's changed like a lot of America has changed. Uh, it's a lot more multicultural. Uh, there's a lot more going on. Uh, I just didn't feel so tight, so uh, monoculture. Sure. And, you know, people argue whether that's a good or bad thing. I think it's a good thing because I think the more options you have, yeah. uh, you know, is it, better. Well, you go to places like Milwaukee. I perform Milwaukee. Milwaukee is a great town. It's an amazing town. And, and I get a little peeved because I just did this um, thing for uh, uh, Jim Pina. Uh-huh. And, and, and I think some people interpreted what I did in that as a diss to Milwaukee. And if anybody's <laughs> in Milwaukee, I'm sorry. That's not what I meant. I love Milwaukee. Oh, it's a great... And, and, and a very like active theater culture that surprised me. Well, I, I was with a small theater company there. A very homegrown kind of... Um, do-it-yourself uh, theater company, very committed, very good, called Theater X. I was there with them when I was very young. And um, I hadn't been there for a while, but I, I really liked Milwaukee. Yeah. It had a lot of, I don't know about theater, but it, it had a lot of cultural going on and a lot of uh, uh, kind of an art scene and a music scene, and there were interesting people there. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of like performance halls, and they've 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 done this amazing thing where they've just converted all these old factories into these really kind of cool, artistic, yeah, yeah, cool, yeah, yeah, cool spaces. But and I always say the same thing: like if you go there in the summer or the fall, it totally tricks you, and you're like, why doesn't everyone live here? And you realize, oh yeah, because nine months out of the year, you want to die <laughs> for the weather. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> Uh, we had but, to, you know, global warming, you know. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my. I, I, I was just in New York. It was like 60 degrees in New York it last was. week. I mean, I was walking around today, and I said, man, it's night, you know, I prefer New York to L.A., but this weather is really beautiful. And someone said, hey, it's 65 in New York. Yeah, yeah. it's gorgeous there right now. I hope I think they're probably just bracing for like, oh, what's going to happen in March? Mm-hmm. We're going to get dumped on. You know, they say things are... I was reading a, an article where they said the weather patterns have changed and the animals have screwed up because they're mating at the wrong time. So, sure. you know, they're going to start having children that, you know, if the, a cold snap happens, they're going to be... It's why animals... They're going to be wiped out, you yeah. know? That's why why all the non-human animals should just mate like humans and just do it whenever they feel like <laughs> it. Yeah. Not we'll follow a schedule. I don't want to go off a schedule. If I'm going to rabbit, I'm going to take another rabbit out for drinks. <laughs> uh, we're going to get a nice hotel room. I thought that's the way it always works. <laughs> <Isn't that> always? <laughs> <laughs> These rabbits are getting drunk and populating. Yeah. Oh, there's too many rabbits. Um, was it? We had, uh, we had Brian Cranston on the podcast, who's also... You know, I saw him last night. He's so great. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know him well. I saw him on the set, and, um, you know, of late, of, I, you know, I see he's, he's everywhere. Um, seems like a good guy. He's a really yeah. good guy, and I, when, we had, when he was on the podcast, I asked him, um, what I, w- I was trying to draw out of him, like, oh, you know, you're a performer, you know, how did you get through insecurities, and how do you, do, what was your plan B? And he was just like, none of it. Was he was like, nah, I don't know, I was never really insecure, and I didn't have a plan B. Did you did you have any kind of backup if or it was just like acting forever no matter what? No, I didn't have a plan A. That's the <laughs> secret. <laughs> no, in the sense that, you know, people say 
and this may seem glib now, but the truth is when, you know, when people say, when did you decide to be an actor? And I say, I didn't, you know. I just went from situation to situation in groups of people. I've been very lucky that way. Um, you know, I knew I wanted to perform, but it's not like I didn't have extensive training and I mostly trained by doing. I never decided. I always assumed, you know, like next year I'll have to figure out what to do. Sure. Next year I'll have to figure out what to do. And then enough time passed, you know, in the beginning, mostly with very modest but great uh, avant-garde theater company called the Wooster Group. Then after years doing films and doing the Wooster Group for, you know, over 20 years, I had to look and say, well, I guess I'm an actor, you know? Yeah. I think maybe it's it's interesting to hear you say that and then to see your performances and how flexible you are. I think you, I think you have a natural flexibility just in life and in your approach to your work, too. Sounds good. I think you're wrong. <laughs> really? You think so? No, I mean, don't give me the... Don't, I don't want to give the right idea, uh, wrong idea. I mean, you know, I stress about stuff, but it's not like I've never had, like, a target or, you know... Yeah. You talk about insecurity or darkness. That's always there. Sure. And uh, it's a great motivator. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. That is a fire to light under you. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I was watching a bunch of actors, you know, for one of these pre-Oscar things, and... I was really struck that they they said to this panel of you know kind of kind of uh, odds uh, odds heavy uh, possibilities for nominations mm-hmm. that the Hollywood Reporter organized. They said, "What makes a good actor?" And uh, Christopher uh, Plummer, who's been around for a sure. while, said, "The best actors that I've always seen." have a certain kind of rage. <laughs> and I found that kind of true and, and, and interesting. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not an actor, but I imagine, I mean... I, I mean, I'm, it's, it's, you know, there are all kinds of actors, but I, I think they were mostly talking about dramatic actors. Well, there's, a, there's an emotional sensitivity that I think you have to have because you essentially have to absorb a character and you mm-hmm. have to be able to kind of move effortlessly in between all that mm-hmm. and you kind of have to be empathic in that way it's true so you, you can't not just be emotional it's true I think it's true so you gotta have something that makes the stakes high and if you're pissed the stakes are really high because <laughs> everything you take personally <laughs> right are you able to uh <coughs> Are you able to, at the end of the, the day, acting, the end of the end of the workday, just kind of brush it off, or do you still? Is it kind of hard with the emotional residue? Like, oh, I've been doing this intense stuff all day, and I now I just feel kind of bad. It depends. You know, I used to say, as a point of pride, I used to say, I'm activated by the camera. You know, once that camera turns off, the character goes inside of me. But as time goes on, maybe as I get older, I'm getting more sensitive or something. But things stay with me longer; they resonate longer. Yeah. And if you're Particularly if you're playing like a role that 12 hours of the day, you know, if like I did a movie called The Hunter, mm-hmm. where I'm in practically every frame of the movie, or actually another one coming out called 444. Yeah. Both I work every day, and they're long days, so you basically wake up, you do whatever you do in the morning, you go off to work, you work for sometimes 12, 14, sometimes 16 hours, believe it or not. You sleep a little, and then you do it over again. So most of your waking time is doing things related to the character. So you're addressing yourself to the character's concerns. So those things start to infect your dreams, and and when you're doing it, it starts to insinuate itself into how you feel, and and also you're willing this transformation. Right. Um, So it, it does stay with you. Now, that doesn't mean you're mentally unstable, but when you're finished, it takes a little while getting out of the habit because mm-hmm. you've got to orient yourself to a different concerns. And where do you point your, your, your concentration, your thoughts, you know, right. to your regular life? Well, I never know what my regular life is anyway because I'm a little bit of a gypsy. I like to work and I move around a lot. So as I get older, it's funny. It gets a little more... Difficult. Yeah. You'd think it would be the other way around. You'd think I'd, I'd be turned into the old pro that could turn it off and on. It's becoming less so. 
I'm, I'm affected more deeply by things than I, I used to be. With, uh, with like the Oscars and, you know, like, is, it, is any of that stuff, do you just kind of go, ah, it's just part of the business? Is it still exciting or anything? Is it weird? Depends whether you're in the game or not. You know? <laughs> I mean, so what does that feel I like? I have been in the game and most of the time I'm not in that particular game. Or I'm, you know, it's a, I'm relatively involved in it, you know? What, is that mo- what does that feel like when you're sitting in that chair and then, they, like, what is, what is it? Can you equate it to anything? You know, it's different because I had two very different experiences. I was nominated two times yeah. and they were separated like like 10 years or something like that. And the first time, I didn't even know when they were announcing the Oscars. My son's babysitter called me up and said, you've been nominated. And I was excited. <laughs> and, you know, then, you know, you, you did the press for the movie and... It was exciting and was an honor and, you know, it was, it was pretty overwhelming. The second time wasn't any less overwhelming, but it's, there's more of a science put to campaigning for it, sure. anticipating it. political. You know, before movies are even made, they're, you know, kind of tagged. Oscar material not. Sure. You, you can even read scripts sometimes and say, wow, this is Oscar bait, you know? Right. So... I don't, and it's not just me. It's just, it's, you know, uh, public relations and, and, and the links to the studios, to their corporate, uh, uh, to their corporate uh, owners. Just to, the seedy the underbelly that people you know, don't want to know. This, yeah. You know, it's, it's much more um, calculated. Right. So it's different. It's different. And in a way, it makes it a little more intense. Yeah, and and I I'm sure if you if you win a little more sweet even <laughs> because it's it's a you know a grown ups game where sure. before it was kind of a more elegant casual you know uh, a nod of recognition now it becomes like a, r- a bare knuckled fight to oh, yeah. see who's uh, who you know can get in the position. I always just I just see people just sitting in the chairs when they're like and the nominees are. And I just, I don't know how... You know they're all going, oh, shit. Yeah, exactly. Like, how they're just not... Or how I'm embarrassed. Sure. Or maybe they're saying, oh, I'm relieved. I don't have to give that speech. I couldn't quite work out in my head. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so hard to win with a good speech. It's so hard to win. There's such a, there's such a margin for, like, ah, they talked too long. They didn't thank this person. They didn't do that shit. Yeah. It just feels like, oh, it's almost too much pressure. But I, you know... Obviously, you try not to think about these things. Right. They're part of it, but, you, you know, that's not my job. Yeah. It's not my job until it becomes my job. <laughs> so where's the... Where's the... Which translate as, as uh, this year, I'm just promoting, uh, you know, John Carter right now. Yeah. And, uh, watching with interest. Yeah. <laughs> From the sidelines. Interesting choice. I'll be back there. Um, I, I always wonder where... You know, the more successful you become, I think we all have this need to feel relevant no matter what we do. Sure. And you see it in comedy where young comics feel like they want to be relevant by being famous comics, but then mm-hmm. the famous comics want their relevance from wanting the young comics to like them. Wow. Okay. Even, though, even though they have, like, this success, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So do you still, like, where do you, where do you get that with, with your work now? Relevance. Mm. Like what, what makes you feel like, yeah, I'm doing, I'm making the, you know, these are choices that I'm happy making and I feel like I'm doing, you know, relevance. Oh. Do you even think about that? I don't. I mean, I just think about how I feel and when I feel bad, I do something to change it. When I feel good, I keep on going, you know? <laughs> I guess that's good. You, you, don't, no, you, don't I mean, be, you don't have to be a stand-up then. That's good. No, no. You know, once, once for, I did one cool thing many years ago for the Worcester Group. We were doing, um. A show, and as we were developing it, we decided as an exercise we wanted to learn how to do stand up. Mm-hmm. And none of us were necessarily at all had a, you know, a talent for this necessarily. So there was some, you know, like learning annex or something like that in New York City, you know. You know, one of the, we all, under fake names, and this was before I was making movies, or many movies anyway. So people wouldn't necessarily know me. Under pseudonyms, I was Will Worf, I remember. We registered for a comedy class. And the, the end of the comedy class, after we got our instruction from this comic, you yeah. know, 
was like one night at, I can't remember, it was an East Coast place, but sure. you know, like a comedy sure, club, sure. doing our materials. Right. Yeah. <laughs> How'd it so, go? Well, you know, the truth is that I did the whole class and I wrote the material, but then I got a movie and I couldn't do the comedy thing. And, and I had a, my, one of the other actors didn't like his routine, so I gave him my material and he did it. You're definitely not a stand-up. And he bombed. <laughs> and he bombed. <laughs> because he knew it was your voice. Do you remember any of your jokes? Do you remember any of the jokes? No, I just remember it was very uh, biographical. I remember sometimes as a kid being very embarrassed that my mother would take late night baths and uh, this I'm not going to be able to get this together this, this is, is my hilarious <laughs> my mother would take late night baths and and if I had to pee or something they, she there was a bathroom near my near my room with the biggest tub yeah and I knock on the door and she yes I said mom are you in there and she'd say yes just wait a moment and it was so creepy because <laughs> she was kind of like in a warm bath and she, her voice was kind of honeyed and all that and, and I remember I'd go in and she'd take like three washcloths yeah put one <laughs> over uh, over her, let's call them privates. Yes. And one on each breast. And yes. Smiling there with a, uh, a nice, relaxed, motherly well, face. Well, you pee. As I'm trying to pee. I think it scared me for life. <laughs> and I don't even remember what the joke was, but there was something about those three little wash, washcloths being something like the pieces of pepperoni on a pepperoni pizza. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you can never eat pizza again. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is this is why I'm, you know, I, I'm not a stand-up. Yeah, I, I never. When I tell a joke, I never know the important parts because it always shifts for me. I don't sure. have the discipline to stay with knowing what the, you know, I can't keep my eye on the prize. I get, uh, <laughs> I get uh, swayed by embellishments. You know? That's fine, though. I think that's where a lot of young, if you're, if you're telling me here on this podcast you're going to start your stand-up career now, I feel like most young comedians start out that way and they go, I'm never going to do the same material twice. And then you realize, ah, fuck, there's actually a craft to, like, honing it yeah, down yeah. and, yeah, yeah. you know, like, finding the magic beats yeah. every time. Um, I'd be crazy if I didn't ask you a little bit about Norman Osborne because it is the Nerdist podcast. Okay, and sure. that was uh, I, I, I think I think what what Sam Raimi figured out, and I think part of why there's such this craze for you know comic book based movies now was you put really amazing actors into an action movie and it just comes alive. Mm -hmm. um, when they approached you for that, it, they that type of superhero movie wasn't really in vogue at the time. It was a whole new thing and hadn't really been done that well. It's true, but I I had a sense that this was like... I don't know, this was so close to his heart and he took it so seriously and it was such a beautiful mixture of comedy and, and, and drama. Mm -hmm. And I liked the double role, the fact that, you know, there was this character that was kind of... is really the bulk of the character. Mm -hmm. It was much less the Green Goblin, but kind of a tragic character. Right. Um, and, and then the Green Goblin, then I get to do all the fun, you know, action stuff that I really love to do. That's the little boy in me that likes to still, you yeah. know, do pure action sequences. Yeah. So I think it was just, I saw those scenes and thought it would be fun, you know? And uh, unlike um, films that I usually did, I, I had a lot of faith in Sam. And uh, also I remember when we started working on it, when we started going through the scenes, I remember Toby was really, really good at uh, kind of character study, like mm -hmm. a, a scene analysis, something that doesn't come to me naturally. Um, so it, it was really, uh, they were good people, and it wasn't, um, you know, like a cynical, you know, kind of prefab tentpole thing. Sure. It was a very uh, personal movie. Yeah, that those the, the heart of the, uh, the 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 story really spoke to Sam, and then you know infects you, and you take that on as well. Yeah, I mean, I remember, for example, one of the first things he did. He said, "You gotta you gotta 
go back to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, read that. And I thought, cool, you know, that's good. That's awesome. That's good, yeah. I mean, it, really, it really was. But, but from, any, from any kind of villain's point of view, he's never evil. He mm-hmm. just wants what he wants, and he feels like that's the right thing. Yeah, I think, you know, everybody, you know, sometimes the problems with villains, uh, how they function is their, their motives are very soft, you know, mm-hmm. so you can't relate to them. They're kind of signed, you yeah. know, they're like a force. Uh, this had that interesting kind of split uh, that was, was helped a lot by the fact of his relationship, that kind of triangle of he was a better son to... Toby's character, Peter Parker, right. than he was to his own son. Right. And that kind of triangle of him failing as a father but loving his son, that stuff was all in the mix. Sure. I like that a lot, too. But speaking of son, there's a giant billboard of James Franco. I know, I know. <laughs> Believe me, it's not lost on me. I mean, James. We're right, right where we're recording this podcast. The literally 30 feet high, I James know, Franco. Uh, right outside. That's true. Um, but, uh, well, I'm gonna. you've been super awesome with your time, and I don't sure. want to take over any more no, of it, okay. uh, but thank you so much for having to, sure. to your hotel. Give my best to the nerds. I will give your best to the nerds. Do you, do you ever go to any of the Comic Cons? No, I haven't. Comic-Con? I haven't. I mean, I would. The nerds if, would love you. <laughs> I would if it would make sense to me. And, yeah. You know, a bunch of times uh, for Boondock Saints, which has a big, oh, strong uh, fan base, I've meant to go, but I've never, um, you know, I, I've just been busy. Or, sure. Yeah. If you ever, If you ever go one time, you could go... Uh, like in a full costume just uh-huh. to walk the floor uh-huh. it is a, it is a human experience unlike anything else you just can't even fathom what it's like so someday I hope you you're okay. like you know what I'll just go once in, in costume Camino. yeah okay. and then no one because okay. if they no. see you it'll they'll just swarm yeah it's swarm <laughs> swarm they'll devour you with love and hugs God God bless the nerds that's all <laughs> I have a feeling that some of our listeners are going to rip that and make a ringtone out of it <laughs> you say God bless the nerds but uh, thank you so much our sure. guest today has been comedian Will Worf uh, <laughs> and then I went in there and she had three waist uh, washcloths over her privates and her breasts it kind of reminded me <laughs> of the pepperoni on a pepperoni pizza <laughs> see what are you talking about that's the guy that's the guy I'll work on it I'll work on it you won't hear from me for a while I, I gotta go off uh, you know to uh, India and work just, on my routine yeah, it's, like, it's like in being John Malkovich when he takes him over and then he becomes a, ma- a puppeteer yeah, exactly. like, wow Will, Will Warf alright thanks so much man alright yeah, tell people to go see John Carter please go see John Carter they'll love it for crap's sake it looks stunning you know what it's better even than it looks excellent alright enjoy your burrito everyone <laughs> now leaving Nerdist.com Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Go to Stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Nerdist for a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and $55 of free postage. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code NERDIST. I have missed these Friday night dinners. Mm. Welcome to Harvey Graw! At these family dinners... Delicious, everyone! Dysfunction is served. I can't have you all messing things up for my entire adult life. Oh, I'm sorry. Do we embarrass you? Jump, jump, jump! It's already better than I dared to dream. They're extra. Let the wild rumpus start! And they're embarrassing. We know how hard it is to move on from the first girl that you ever slept with. Not the first girl who I ever slept with. Yeah, 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 right. You're a regular lady killer. I thought you said it was going to be boring here tonight. No! I really hope it would be. But they couldn't love each other more. It's mom and dad being totally normal. Wow. So, dinner next Friday, everyone? Wouldn't miss for the world. Dinner with the Parents, Season 1. Stream free, only on Freebie. 